American journalist Evan Gershkovich makes an appearance in a Moscow courtroom to appeal a decision to hold him on spying charges. It's Tuesday, April 18th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, violent clashes in Sudan entered their fourth day with two military factions fighting for control. Also, the effort by Massachusetts firefighters and their families to get dangerous PFAS chemicals removed from protective gear. We deserve better as firefighters, and quite frankly, the public deserves better. We're coming into your homes. It's flaking off us and flowing around your house. And this hour, new concerns for people who get COVID while pregnant. Male fetuses are known to be more vulnerable to maternal infectious exposures during pregnancy. In sports, Bruins win their first game of the playoffs, mostly cloudy, near 60 today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Prosecutors in Kansas City, Missouri, have charged an 84-year-old white man with shooting a black teenager in the head. The boy had knocked on his front door by accident. Missouri prosecutor Zachary Thompson says Andrew Lester now faces a serious charge. The defendant is charged with an A felony. It's the highest level of offense in the state of Missouri. It carries with it a range of punishment of 10 to 30 years or life imprisonment. Uh, Other charges may not carry that same level of range of punishment. Thompson says the teenager did not enter Lester's home and that Lester shot him through a glass door. The prosecutor also says there is a racial component to the shooting, but he did not elaborate. The White House says President Biden telephoned the teenager yesterday. The Alabama Law Enforcement Agency has identified the four shooting victims killed at a teenager's birthday party last weekend. But Alabama officials are not saying much more. They haven't identified a suspect or informed the Alabama community whether there is further danger. Russian President Vladimir Putin has made a rare visit to Russian-held territory in occupied southern Ukraine. As NPR's Charles Maines reports from Moscow, this seems to be the closest Putin's come to the war's front lines since Russia invaded. According to a statement released on the Kremlin's website, Putin made a surprise trip to occupied Kherson and Luhansk, the first time he's been to either of those regions since Moscow illegally claimed to have annexed the territories last September. Online videos showed Putin traveling to the region by helicopter and later sitting down with military commanders, where he asked for their assessments of progress in the Russian military campaign. Although the exact timing of the trip was unclear, the video also showed Putin referencing the Orthodox Easter holiday, which was this past Sunday. Putin's trip to the area comes amid widespread anticipation of a Ukrainian counteroffensive in the coming weeks or months. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich has appeared in a Russian courtroom. He's been charged with spying. He denies it and is appealing his detention. The U.S. government has declared that Gershkovich is now wrongfully detained by the Russian government. President Biden will sign a new executive order today focused on making child care and other forms of caregiving more affordable. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports. Biden's new executive order will look at how the federal government can expand affordable child care and family care and provide benefits for care workers. One part of Biden's plan is looking at ways to make federal grants contingent on companies having child care programs in place, which is something the administration has done in previous legislation, like the bill the president signed last year on semiconductors. The White House says the plan will also improve access to home-based care for veterans and improve the affordability of child care on military installations. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, Washington. It's NPR. 
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Later this morning, we'll hear from the champions of this year's Boston Marathon. That includes Evans Chabet, who won the men's title in an upset, and Helen O'Beary, who won the women's title in just her second-ever marathon. Thousands of runners finished this year's race, and thousands more were there to cheer them on. WBUR's Andrea Permodo Hernandez spoke with family members of some runners who say there's a certain magic about the race. On the corner of Hereford and Boylston Streets, Ed Rydell of Nebraska rested his arms on a barricade. He was here to cheer on his wife, Mandy. He said Boston is his favorite race. Oh, the history, the camaraderie. I mean, we're from the middle of nowhere. And this is the coolest town ever. <laughs> Leah Ray of Texas also snagged a spot to watch her husband. She said race days are always special. Oh, just getting to see him. I'm tearing up now thinking about it, but it's always amazing to see how hard he works and then get to see it come to fruition. About 30,000 people participated in this year's marathon. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo Hernandez. The Department of Defense says it's cutting back on the number of people who have access to classified information. That follows last week's arrest of a Massachusetts Air National Guardsman. 21-year-old Jack Teixeira of Dighton is accused of leaking Pentagon documents online. He's expected back in federal court in Boston tomorrow. DOD officials haven't said who is losing access to classified information. The Boston Herald reports the review is a long-term effort. You've had a few extra days, but today is the deadline for filing your taxes. Luz Arevalo is an attorney with Greater Boston Legal Services. Here's what she says you should know if you can't pay your taxes. The penalty for filing late is higher than the penalty for paying late. So always, always, always file on time, even if you don't have the ability to pay right then and there. If you can afford to pay but aren't prepared to file, Arevalo suggests requesting an automatic filing extension at the IRS website. But even with an extension, you could face a fine. A heads-up to riders on the red line, buses are set to replace trains every night today through Thursday from Park Street to JFK UMass. MBTA officials say they're preparing for construction that starts this weekend. It's 7.06. WBUR supporters include Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. The Bruins opened their playoff run last night with a 3-1 win over the Florida Panthers. Game 2 will be tomorrow night. Tonight is Game 2 in the playoff series between the Celtics and the Hawks. And the Red Sox will be back at Fenway tonight to play the Minnesota Twins. In your forecast, mostly cloudy with a little sun today. It'll be near 60. Partly cloudy overnight. It'll be around 40. Mostly sunny again tomorrow and in the upper 50s. It should stay dry through Saturday. It's 50 degrees in Boston at 707. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, committed to acting in their clients' best interests. Learn more at letsmakeaplan.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. 
And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. The biggest media trial in decades is set to begin today in Delaware. The case pits conservative media network Fox News against Dominion Voting Systems, a maker of electronic voting machines. Dominion is suing, is suing Fox for broadcasting false claims that Dominion's voting machines changed votes cast for then-President Donald Trump over to Joe Biden. Dominion wants $1.6 billion in damages, and there are broader issues in the balance for media companies and the way they're held accountable for what they produce. For more, we're joined by First Amendment attorney Martin Garbus. Uh, Martin, what makes this lawsuit so significant for the media industry and the First Amendment? It's an extraordinary examination into what the media does. Times Against Sullivan said that the media is, is responsible if they publish something with actual malice that if they publish something with reckless disregard of the truth, if the media just does something negligently, inadvertent, then it may not be held liable. And this case is the first case since Times Against Sullivan, which uh, came down in 64, that really interprets what those words mean, actual malice and recklessness. And in this case, the... Dominion has pulled together uh, 20 statements which were made by Fox people. could be Dobbs, it could be uh, Carlson, it could be Haunt Hannity or Gene Pirro, which they say the media, the, when that person made the statement, they knew that the claim that Biden or Dominion was involved in election fraud was false, that they knew there wasn't a negligent statement, that they knew that when they said a company founded in Venezuela to rig elections for Hugo Chavez paid kickbacks or that Dominion's machines rigged vote counts. And, and Martin, that's what the jury is deciding, right? The trial judge already ruled that the statements were false, but the jury right. is to decide whether Fox deliberately aired them knowing they were false. Yes. Okay, so how does this case then compare to past claims against news organizations? There has never been a case where, and I've tried hundreds of cases, libel cases, over the years, there's never been a case where there's been this much evidence, both of falsity and knowing falsity. And you've never met, seen a case where the actual malice standard is met as this one is. Uh, in other words, when, when, when the Fox people put people on, they knew that Sidney Powell was unreliable, that Giuliani was unreliable. And they knew that those people had never checked out, and they knew those people were winging it. So Dominion then has a claim to, uh, to deal with whatever damage they suffered as a result of these actually malicious statements. Then would a win for Dominion weaken New York Times versus Sullivan? I don't think so. Some people think so. Why not? I think it, well, because I think that you have never seen a case like this, and uh, we're now talking about a 50, 60-year span, and I've, there's never been a case as egregious as this. If you saw the New York Times or the Washington Post or even NPR, you'll have one or two people involved, you'll have one or two statements. But here you have all these emails, you have all these admissions, you have all the facts. There's never been a case that has covered this amount of time let's say three months, from November to, to January, with so many different emails, 
and it's absolutely clear. So you're saying, so you're saying, let me let me see if I understand this. You're saying that the evidence in this case makes this a special case. So there wouldn't yeah. necessarily be a flood of libel lawsuits all all over the place if if it goes Dominion's way. Yes, I think that there are always going to be lawsuits anytime anybody wins anything. But is this going to jeopardize the uh, the media? No. In fact, it jeopardizes our democracy if if people like Fox are not stopped from doing what was done here. But if Fox wins, then, Martin, then is the bar for defamation set too high? I mean, would a win for Fox maybe help efforts to roll back broader protections for journalists? I don't think so. There's no way. Anybody can say anything in a decision. We've seen that with Supreme Court judges. But the facts here are so unique that you cannot say if a New York Times reporter or an NPR reporter makes a mistake, that as a result of this case, we're going to find actual malice. It's very, very different. In Times against Sullivan, the New York Times made a mistake, innocent mistake, and they were held not liable. That will be the law. I think that the people who are saying that Fox should get off are making a terrible mistake about the nature of material broadcast on our uh, train, uh, TV or in books or magazines. If Fox gets off, then the uh, then how is it possible then if Fox if Fox wins how would it be possible for any news organization to ever uh, lose a case like this? You're exactly correct. What, what you what you just said exactly correct. What happens then if this lawsuit ends up in a settlement? I think it should be settled. I don't see why, and I'm astonished it hasn't been settled. I cannot see Fox allowing two months of their people going on the stand, admitting they lied and they relied on, on, on uh, false facts. It's astonishing to me that this case has not been settled. I think last year, three libel cases were tried to a conclusion over the hundreds that are filed. People recognize that nobody wins if you show all of Fox's laundry here. I'm astonished that they haven't done it. And so ultimately then, in the last uh, 30 seconds we have, Martin, how does this case, one way or the other, affect the work of journalists? I think that in, in holding Fox liable, it'll stop other people who are so used to lying on the air. So I think it's a great step forward for the democracy. The world is more than just journalists. The democracy has helped by cleaning out the sewage, and that's what this case can do. That's First Amendment attorney Martin Garbus. Martin, thanks for your time. Thank you. There's been no let-up in the heavy artillery fire bombardments that began in Sudan over the weekend. Two rival military groups are engaged in open warfare, a battle for power as millions of people are sheltering inside. The United Nations says close to 200 people have been killed so far, with hundreds more wounded. Just yesterday, the European Union ambassador was also assaulted at his residence, and a U.S. diplomatic convoy was fired on. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said everyone involved is safe and calls with both sides he pushed for a ceasefire. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu is in Lagos following the latest. Good morning. Good morning. So this is the fourth day of fighting in Sudan, and you've been speaking to people there. If you could just describe what everyone's going through. Leila, just incredibly bleak stories from people trapped inside their homes for days, no running water, hardly any food, no electricity. 
And in the backdrop, the constant rubble of fighting going on all day, all night, no let up. You know, the humanitarian situation in Sudan is growing dire. Some hospitals have had to shut down. Many others are, are running out of supplies. Some have been taken over actually by the rapid support forces, the RSF for warfare. One person just outside Khartoum told me late last night that the RSF were actually embedding in their homes within their neighborhoods, ordering people to leave and making these homes a target for airstrikes. Tagreed Abdin, she's, she's an architect, a mother, and she's trapped like millions of other people inside her home in Khartoum. And she shared her frustration about this entire situation in a, in a video on Twitter. And you can hear in the background the, the rumble of explosions. We're just caught in the middle. Uh, I don't have a preference. I don't need, I, you know, it's like, just this, this is our new normal now. Just incredibly bleak and, and of course, as well as how this has impacted ordinary people in Sudan, there's also been the attacks on the diplomatic community too. Now, you mentioned the RSF, which is one of the warring factions here. If you could describe this truly awful situation for people, is there any news on any let-up, any possible ceasefire? Well, Leila, just about an hour ago, the head of the RSF, General Mohamed Hamdan Dagolo, widely known as Hameti, he said he'd abide by a 24-hour humanitarian ceasefire. And we've actually heard a response from the army. You know, a spokesperson for General Al-Bahan told our colleague Aya Batrawi that the army sees this statement as a smokescreen, as a cover-up for their, as he called it, imminent defeat. And so this is, in effect, part of what makes this conflict incredibly difficult. Both sides are engaged in military warfare, but there's also a propaganda war. And it's difficult, increasingly difficult, especially outside Khartoum, to have a sense of how this conflict is unfolding. There's fighting in Khartoum, in several parts of the country, but the picture is murky and both sides are claiming victory. So, you know, Blinken called both generals last night himself urging a ceasefire and it doesn't sound like it's going to happen. So what can happen to persuade the two leaders to stop fighting? Who can get involved? Well, a whole host of countries have leverage. The countries with the greatest leverage are Arab countries, you know, the UAE, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and there are also countries regionally who have called for mediation. And the difficulty with this mediation is that most of these countries can't actually even get into Sudan. The airports are inaccessible because of fighting. And both sides say that while they're open to negotiations, they're vowing to defeat the other. It's almost four years exactly since the revolution in Sudan. And we saw so much promise, so much hope and inspiration for many people in in Sudan and and in Africa. And four years since then, what we've seen is that the promise of that revolution has been incredibly hard to fulfill. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu in Lagos. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This is NPR News. Does something negligently, inadvertent, then it may not be held liable. And this case is the first case since Times Against Sullivan, which uh, came down in 64, that really interprets what those words mean, actual malice and recklessness. And in this case, the Dominion has pulled together 
20 statements which were made by Fox people. It could be Dobbs, it could be uh, Carlson, it could be Haunt Hannity or Gene Pirro, which they say the media, the, when that person made the statement, they knew that the claim that Biden or Dominion was involved in election fraud was false, that they knew there wasn't a negligence statement, that they knew that when they said a company founded in Venezuela to rig right. elections for Hugo Chavez, paid kickbacks, or that Dominion's machines rigged vote counts. And, and Martin, that's what the jury is deciding, right? The trial judge already ruled that the statements were false, but the jury right. is to decide whether Fox deliberately aired them knowing they were false. Yes. Okay, so how does this case then compare to past claims against news organizations? There has never been a case where, and I've tried hundreds of cases, libel cases, over the years, there's never been a case where there's been this much evidence, both of falsity and knowing falsity. And you've never met, seen a case where the actual malice standard is met as this one is. Uh, in other words, when, when, when the Fox people put people on, they knew that Sidney Powell was unreliable, that Giuliani was unreliable. And they knew that those people had never checked out, and they knew those people were winging it. So Dominion then has a claim to, uh, to deal with whatever damage they suffered as a result of these actually malicious statements. Then would a win for Dominion weaken New York Times versus Sullivan? I don't think so. Some people think so. Why not? I think it, well, because I think that you have never seen a case like this, and uh, we're now talking about a 50, 60-year span, and I, there's never been a case as egregious as this. If you saw the New York Times or the Washington Post or even NPR, you'll have one or two people involved, you know, have one or two statements. But here you have all these emails, you have all these admissions, you have all the facts. There's never been a case that has covered this amount of time let's say three months, from November to, to January, with so many different emails. And it's absolutely clear. So you're, say, so you're saying, let me, let me see if I understand this. You're saying that the evidence in this case makes this a special case, so there wouldn't yes. necessarily be a flood of libel lawsuits all, all over the place if, if it goes Dominion's way. Yes. I think that there are always going to be lawsuits anytime anybody wins anything. But is this going to jeopardize the uh, the media no in fact it jeopardizes our democracy it's if people like fox are not stopped from doing what was done here but if fox wins then martin then is the bar for defamation set too high i mean would a win for fox maybe help efforts to roll back broader protections for journalists i don't think so there's no way anybody can say anything in a decision we've seen that with supreme court judges but the facts here are so unique that you cannot say if a New York Times reporter or an NPR reporter makes a mistake that as a result of this case, we're going to find actual malice. It's very, very different. In Times Against Sullivan, the New York Times made a mistake, innocent mistake, and they were held not liable. That will be the law. I think that the people who are saying that Fox should get off are making a terrible mistake about the nature of material broadcast on our uh, train, uh, TV or, or in books or magazines. If Fox gets off, then the 
<laughs> then how is it possible then if Fox if Fox wins, how would it be possible for any news organization to ever uh, lose a case like this? You're exactly correct. What, what, you, what you just said exactly correct. What happens then if this lawsuit ends up in a settlement? I think it should be settled. I don't see why, and I'm astonished it hasn't been settled. I cannot see Fox allowing two months of their people going on the stand, admitting they lied and they relied on, on, on uh, false facts. It's astonishing to me that this case has not been settled. I think last year, three libel cases were tried to a conclusion over the hundreds that are filed. People recognize that nobody wins if you show all of Fox's laundry here. I'm astonished that they haven't done it. And so ultimately then, in the last 30 seconds we have, Martin, how does this case, one way or the other, affect the work of journalists? I think that in, in holding Fox liable, it'll stop other people who are so used to lying on the air. So I think it's a great step forward for the democracy. The world is more than just journalists. The democracy is helped by cleaning out the sewage. And that's what this case can do. That's First Amendment attorney Martin Garbus. Martin, thanks for your time. Thank you. There's been no let up in the heavy artillery fire bombardments that began in Sudan over the weekend. Two rival military groups are engaged in open warfare, a battle for power as millions of people are sheltering inside. The United Nations says close to 200 people have been killed so far, with hundreds more wounded. Just yesterday, the European Union ambassador was also assaulted at his residence and a U.S. diplomatic convoy was fired on. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said everyone involved is safe and calls with both sides he pushed for a ceasefire. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu is in Lagos following the latest. Good morning. Good morning. So this is the fourth day of fighting in Sudan, and you've been speaking to people there. If you could just describe what everyone's going through. Leila, just incredibly bleak stories from people trapped inside their homes for days, no running water, hardly any food, no electricity. And in the backdrop, the constant rubble of fighting going on all day, all night, no let up. You know, the humanitarian situation in Sudan is growing dire. Some hospitals have had to shut down. Many others are are running out of supplies. Some have been taken over, actually, by the Rapid Support Forces, the RSF for warfare. One person just outside Khartoum told me late last night that the RSF were actually embedding in their homes within their neighborhoods, ordering people to leave and making these homes a target for airstrikes. Tagreed Abdin, she's, she's an architect, a mother, and she's trapped like millions of other people inside her home in Khartoum. And she shared her frustration about this entire situation in a, in a video on Twitter. And you can hear in the background the, the rumble of explosions. We're just caught in the middle. Uh, I don't have a preference. I don't need, I, you know, it's like, just this is, this is our new normal now. Just incredibly bleak. And, and of course, as well as how this has impacted ordinary people in Sudan, there's also been the attacks on the diplomatic community too. Now, you mentioned the RSF, which is one of the warring factions here. If you could describe this truly awful situation for people, is there any news on any let-up, any possible ceasefire? 
Well, Leila, just about an hour ago, the head of the RSF, General Mohamed Hamdan Dagolo, widely known as Hameti, he said he'd abide by a 24-hour humanitarian ceasefire. And we've actually heard a response from the army. You know, a spokesperson for General Al-Bahan told our colleague Aya Batrawi that the army sees this statement as a smokescreen, as a cover-up for their, as he called it, imminent defeat. And so this is, in effect, part of what makes this conflict incredibly difficult. Both sides are engaged in military warfare, but there's also a propaganda war. And it's difficult, increasingly difficult, especially outside Khartoum, to have a sense of how this conflict is unfolding. There's fighting in Khartoum, in several parts of the country, but the picture is murky and both sides are claiming victory. So, you know, Blinken called both generals last night himself urging a ceasefire and it doesn't sound like it's going to happen. So what can happen to persuade the two leaders to stop fighting? Who can get involved? Well, a whole host of countries have leverage. The countries with the greatest leverage are Arab countries, you know, the UAE, Egypt, Saudi Arabia. And there are also countries regionally who have called for mediation. And the difficulty with this mediation is that most of these countries can't actually even get into Sudan. The airports are inaccessible because of fighting. And both sides say that while they're open to negotiations, they're vowing to defeat the other. It's almost four years exactly since the revolution in Sudan. And we saw so much promise, so much hope and inspiration for many people in in Sudan and and in Africa. And four years since then, what we've seen is that the promise of that revolution has been incredibly hard to fulfill. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu in Lagos. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, revelations that Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas failed to disclose gifts continue to fuel concern that there's a lack of checks and balances for the nation's highest court. And in 20 minutes, the Indian Supreme Court is considering legalizing same-sex marriage, a move opposed by India's government. It's 719. I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world, our co-host Leila Fadel has been reporting from Ukraine. In your community, workers are unionizing in fields where they haven't always had a big presence. And farther afield, think really far, like out of this world. And liftoff of Artemis 1. Morning Edition from NPR News takes you wherever the story is. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. And Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. All this week, WBUR City Space is celebrating Earth Week with a series of events. It kicks off this afternoon with an interactive celebration for kids that looks at how scientists are looking to solve climate change. There will also be a concert on Saturday afternoon. Check out the schedule and get tickets by visiting WBUR.org slash events. Partly sunny today with a high near 60. Tonight, partly cloudy and a low of 41. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and a high near 57. Right now, it's 50 degrees. 
Breweries in Boston at 720. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Investments, a dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. From Progressive, Progressive Commercial Auto Insurance protects the cars, trucks, and vans that work to keep small businesses moving forward, including protection while running errands and other tasks at progressivecommercial.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. A report from ProPublica last week documented a long relationship between Justice Clarence Thomas and Republican donor Harlan Crow, where for more than two decades, Crow took Thomas and his wife on trips that included private jets and yachts, trips that were not originally disclosed, sparking the question, can Democrats and Republicans unite behind changing ethics rules for Supreme Court justices? Our co-host Michelle Martin spoke with two experts on this, Julian Zelizer, a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University, and Virginia Cantor, chief ethics counsel with Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics. The fact that he was accepting repeatedly private plane trips, yacht cruises, luxury resort vacations without disclosing them indicates he was in violation of the Ethics in Government Act, which it was passed by Congress after Watergate that clearly gave him the obligation to disclose these gifts of travel and which he had previously disclosed on earlier occasions. Well, talk about the friend piece, though, because they both insist that they're just friends and that some friends give friends a ride home in their station wagon. You know, some friends give other friends a ride on their private jet. Does it matter? There's two things about that. One is that in terms of disclosure, the only exception for reporting gifts from friends is something called the personal hospitality exception, and it only applies to food, lodging, and entertainment. It does not at all apply to transportation. And then the other problem is that in terms of accepting a gift under the judicial gift regulations that apply to him, they can only be accepted from someone with whom he had a personal relationship. And that would be evidenced by facts that would show that he had a pre-existing relationship before he went on the bench and that it was a reciprocal relationship. In other words, as a friend, I invite you over to dinner and you invite me over to dinner, right? That's, you know, reciprocity. But there's no way uh, Justice Thomas and his wife could ever afford these types of gifts, let alone reciprocate them. And the fact that Harlan Crow met Justice Thomas after Justice Thomas joined the court in 1991, is that a relevant fact here? Yes. The fact that they met after he took office completely undermines the argument that it was a pre-existing personal relationship. Professor Zellerson, you wrote an op-ed for CNN that said the court is already in a crisis of legitimacy and that this does not help. Could you say a little bit about that? Like, why do you say that the court is in a crisis of legitimacy? I mean, first, there's just polling that shows one of the institutions that 
somewhat withstood the aftermath of Vietnam and Watergate, an era when we have seen rising levels of distrust in government institutions, the polls are now falling on the court. I think uh, institutions depend on some kind of accountability. And the stories that now surround Justice Thomas are bringing kind of immense questions, not just about him, but about how the court operates. How do we police what justices do and can't do? And can we have confidence that justices in the highest court of the land uh, are making decisions based on their interpretation of the law rather than their political preferences? And I think we're at one of these important uh, pivotal turning points uh, when the court has to decide what it's going to do, if anything. And if the court isn't going to do something, will Congress perhaps step in? And so those are the reasons I see this as incredibly problematic for the institution, not just the person who's the focus of this. Ms. Kander, can we talk a little bit about what other federal workers and appointees are required to disclose? Let me just mention here, we spoke with a former attorney for a federal agency. His name is Joel Cockrell. He told us about the strict ethics rules he was required to follow over his long federal career. He talked about limitations on giving and receiving gifts and attending events and why those rules existed. Let me just play that for you. I think they were designed to make sure that there was no pretense or even an appearance of impropriety. The message he sends, the appearance of impropriety, which was drilled into us time and time again, he doesn't seem to care about. And I don't know if they're going to do anything about it at all. That's what's really troublesome. Tell me a little bit about what rules just regular folks working for agencies have to comply with. And how is it different for Supreme Court justices, if it is? For regular government employees, they are bound by very strict regulations, which actually bar them from accepting any gift that exceeds $20. So something like private aircraft, yacht cruises, luxury resort stays, it's just completely out of there. Out of the question. It's just out of the question. When issues like this arise, supporters of the individuals tend to think that people are just being haters, basically. The only people who care about this are people who don't like these people or their politics anyway. And I just wanted to ask if either of you feels that there might be a point at which people from both parties might see this as a problem. Professor Zelizer, what do you think? The flip side isn't simply that why are Democrats focused on this? It's why are Republicans not more concerned about this, which is another element of the politics. But look, we've had moments where the American public can look at behavior that's happened in the past that hasn't really come under a spotlight and a story, an individual story becomes so egregious that it actually shakes some of the partisan status quo. And I think many Americans, including many independents, will see this and they'll just understand this is not right for the court, for the system. And, and that's how you can get a moment when you can break through an unwillingness to change how institutions work. Julian Salazar is a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University. Virginia Cantor is chief ethics counsel with Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you.
This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to WBOR. Coming up here on Morning Edition, a new study finds that when pregnant people get COVID, their male children are at greater risk of developmental disorders. And the world's glaciers are melting. Each day this Earth Week on 90.9 WBOR, we'll look at the surprising and far-reaching effects of disappearing ice on the planet. Listen at 8.20 this morning and again this afternoon. It's 7.29. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Chapel Hill Chauncey Hall School, Waltham, where students in grades 7 through 12 achieve their best. Open House, April 23rd, chch.org slash open house. And the law firm of Nutter, McLennan and Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at nutter.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Opening statements are expected today in Delaware in a defamation lawsuit against Fox News. As NPR's Windsor Johnston reports, Dominion Voting Systems is seeking $1.6 billion for the network's claim that the company tried to rig the 2020 presidential election for Joe Biden. Dominion has accused Fox News of repeatedly airing false information about its voting machines and software following the 2020 presidential election. The network has claimed that its reporting is protected under the First Amendment as commentary and news. The trial was supposed to begin on Monday, but a judge pushed back the start of the case, giving both parties a chance to resolve the conflict out of court. There's still no agreement between the White House and congressional Republicans to raise the nation's debt ceiling. NPR's Barbara Sprunt says negotiations remain stalled. In January, the U.S. hit its debt limit. The Treasury Department employed what it calls extraordinary measures to essentially act as a Band-Aid for a couple of months. But that will run out in early summer. If Congress fails to raise the debt limit before then, it could lead to an unprecedented debt default. That means financial markets could be severely hit. It could become difficult to borrow money. And many economists think that without access to credit, a recession would be very likely. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A project in Beverly is using electric school buses to help deal with surges in demand for electricity. Those surges come each summer as people turn on their air conditioning. WBUR's Palomora reports the project will help reduce reliance on fossil fuels. Electric buses carry big batteries that are excellent for storing energy. Beverly Public Schools installed special bidirectional chargers that allow their electric buses to send energy back to the grid. Sean Leach is with Highland Fleets, an electric bus company that coordinates the project. It's perfect because in the summer, when they'd traditionally be sitting around literally doing nothing, now they can be called on to discharge to the grid. Last summer, two electric buses sent 7 megawatt hours to National Grid, the equivalent of powering a home for over 200 days. The school district expects to use three buses this summer. For 9.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moda. For the first time, the city of Boston is recognizing the fastest Bostonians who ran the marathon. Awards will be given to Vinny Castronuovo and Shannon Lemaire. The city will also award the fastest local runner in the new non-binary category. Danielle Bishop will be honored as the first Bostonian to run in that class.
Former President and 2024 candidate Donald Trump will be in New Hampshire this week. Campaign officials tell the Boston Herald he plans to speak in Manchester on Thursday. Trump was indicted last month on charges related to hush money payments. This is Trump's second trip to the Granite State since launching his campaign in January. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. The Bruins got out to an early lead last night and never looked back. They beat the Florida Panthers 3-1 to in Game 1 of their playoff series. Game 2 will be tomorrow night at the Garden. Tonight at the Garden, the Celtics take on the Atlanta Hawks in Game 2 of their playoff series. Boston won game one. Also tonight, the Red Sox will host the Minnesota Twins. A mix of sun and clouds today. Temperatures will rise to a high near 60. Tonight, those fall to a low around 40. Tomorrow, more sun than clouds and a high in the upper 50s. Right now, it's 51 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Cunard, sailing the transatlantic crossing between New York and London on Queen Mary 2. With a commitment to White Star service, fine dining, and entertainment, cunard.com slash crossing. And from Peacock, with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof, streams April 20th on Peacock. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. The nation's COVID-19 tally includes more than 200,000 people who were pregnant when they got infected. Now, scientists are reporting that boys from these pregnancies may be prone to subtle delays in brain development. Here's NPR's John Hamilton. Before COVID-19 came along, researchers at Massachusetts General Hospital were looking at lots of factors that might affect brain development during pregnancy. Dr. Andrea Edlow says these factors included diabetes, obesity, high blood pressure, and even common infections like influenza. When the COVID pandemic started, we pivoted to try to look at fetal brain development and how it might be impacted by maternal SARS-CoV-2 infection. The latest result of that pivot is a study of more than 18,000 infants born at eight hospitals in eastern Massachusetts. About 900 of these babies were born to mothers who contracted COVID while pregnant. Edlow says an analysis of electronic health records found one clear difference. So if a mom had SARS-CoV-2 infection in pregnancy and had a male child, her 12-month-old was 94% more likely to have any neurodevelopmental diagnosis. In other words, one-year-old boys from these moms were about twice as likely to have subtle delays in brain development. There was no difference in girls. Edlow says the finding, published in March in the journal JAMA Network Open, is just the latest example of a well-documented sex difference. Male fetuses and male fetal brain development are known to be more vulnerable to maternal infectious exposures during pregnancy. For some reason, the brain of a male fetus is more likely to be affected when a mother's immune system responds to an infection. In the study, this meant boys were more likely to have delays in areas like grasping objects or using language. Those delays can be associated with autism spectrum disorder. But Dr. Roy Perlis says it's hard to make that diagnosis in kids this young. All we can hope to detect at this point are 
more subtle sorts of things like delays in language and speech and delays in motor milestones. Perla says some boys may catch up as they get older. I hope these effects go away. You know, I would be far happier if at the two-year and the three-year follow-up, there's no effect. But Perla says even if some of the kids turn out to have autism, the overall risk is still quite low. Most children of moms who have COVID during pregnancy won't have neurodevelopmental consequences, even if there is some increase in risk. COVID-19 is just the latest maternal infection linked to changes in brain development. Influenza, for example, has been tied to a child's risk for both autism and schizophrenia. Kim McAllister, who directs the Center for Neuroscience at the University of California, Davis, says the reason appears to involve certain proteins called cytokines, which regulate the immune system. These are cytokines that are really important for that initial immune response. They make you feel really bad. Some of the cytokines can actually cause fever. And that's a good thing because that's your immune system fighting off the the pathogen. But these cytokines also may affect the placenta and even reach the fetus. McAllister says scientists are just beginning to understand how this may alter a developing brain. There's no doubt from the animal models that there is a link between uh, maternal immune activation, changes in gene expression in the brain, changes in brain development, and long-lasting changes in behaviors. Like language delays and difficulty with social interactions. McAllister says the next step is to figure out why this immune activation affects some fetuses but not others. We know that most pregnancies are resilient but we don't know why, and we don't know why some pregnancies are susceptible. When they do know, she says, it may be possible to keep a mom's infection from harming a fetal brain. John Hamilton, NPR News. The Indian Supreme Court is beginning to hear final arguments on a group of petitions seeking to legalize same-sex marriages there. If the court legalizes same-sex marriages in the coming days or weeks, India will become the second place in Asia to do so after Taiwan. The court proceeding is being live-streamed, and watching it closely for us is journalist Shalu Yadav in New Delhi. Shalu, good morning. Good morning, Lela. Okay, so this is quite a moment. If you could just walk us through how this case got to the Supreme Court. Last year, various courts in different cities in India started getting petitions to legalize same-sex marriage. And these appeals were put in mostly by same-sex couples. Now, some of these petitions landed in the Supreme Court as well. And that's when the court decided to bundle all these petitions together and have them heard by a five-judge panel from the court. And these petitions are basically asking that the right to marry a person of one's own choice should be extended to LGBTQ citizens as well. Homosexuality was actually decriminalized in India back in 2018 by the same court, which was a historic judgment, but the community still doesn't have the same legal rights as heterosexual couples have, like being a legal parent to to children or the right to inheritance or even divorce. And it's simple things, Lela, like getting a joint bank account or health insurance or owning a house together, which cannot be done as a same-sex couple because their union is not recognized in Indian law. So what's the government's position on the issue now before the court? Well, Mr. Modi's government position is quite clear that they don't want to see the same-sex couples given the same marital rights. They say that same-sex relations cannot be compared to the sacred Indian family concept of a husband, a wife, and children born out of the union. The Hindu nationalist government actually says that despite the uh, decriminalization of homosexuality by the top court, the petitioners cannot claim the fundamental right for same-sex marriage to be recognized under the laws. 
In fact, the government called the petitions urban elitist views, which has evoked strong reactions from the community and beyond. Now, India is a democracy, but a socially conservative one. Um, You mentioned strong reactions. It's not just the government that has opposed this, right? That's right, Lala. Religious bodies on all sides, be it Hindus or Muslims, They've all come out strongly against the idea. Um, In fact, a Muslim religious body told the court that the concept of same-sex marriage will essentially attack the Indian family system. They say that if legalized, same-sex marriages will dilute the concept of marriage, which is a stable institution as per them, and bring in a free-floating system that would be harmful, uh, according to them, to the social order. Despite that, though, public acceptance in India is growing, right? Yes, it is, Lela. According to a Pew research in 2020, acceptance of homosexuality has in fact grown in India. The research uh, said that 37% of people in India agree that it should be accepted. Now that it's a huge increase uh, from 15% in 2014, Mm. which was the time that the discussions around homosexuality and their rights started to pick up pace in India. So I'd say that the attitudes have definitely changed on the ground, but you know, we still hear about cases of attacks on same-sex couples, and there's a general resistance to the idea of recognizing them in the institution of marriage. Chalo Yadav in New Delhi. Thank you, Chalo. Thank you. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, partnering with Mass Audubon to protect climate-resilient landscapes. MathWorks.com slash Mass Audubon. And La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, modern Latin American fare for those seeking flavorful, healthy choices. Catering your office lunch in Greater Boston. LaCuchara.com. I'm Rupa Shinoy in Boston. Next on Morning Edition, we hear about the ongoing fight by Massachusetts firefighters and their families to remove so-called forever chemicals from their protective gear. And in 30 minutes, the Supreme Court takes up a case revolving around how far employers have to go to accommodate employees who don't want to work on the Sabbath. In your forecast, upper 50s today under partly sunny skies, partly cloudy tonight with low 40s, upper 50s again tomorrow and mostly sunny. It's 51 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms Custom Builders, building healthy, high-performance homes for families and for the future, supporting Riverside Community Care, helping make a difference in the community by delivering innovative and compassionate behavioral health care and human services. More at riversidecc.org and thoughtforms-corp.com. This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Massachusetts firefighters and their families are on the front lines of a battle with PFAS. They're fighting to have the so-called forever chemicals removed from their protective gear. WBWAR's Gabriela Emanuel reports their campaign involves everyone from scientists to politicians, and it's raising public awareness about the health risks of PFAS. Off to the side of Diane Cotter's kitchen, there's a room that looks like a knitting room, but she calls it her war room. 
this is where the research is done and strategies come into fruition. And there was a long time that I wasn't knitting because I was so immersed in the war. Cotter's war started in 2014, right after her husband got promoted by the Worcester Fire Department. He wore his dress uniform for the big ceremony. Oh, I was so happy. You know, he looked so handsome. A month later, her husband was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Complications from the treatment forced him to give up his career as a firefighter, and soon depression set in. While he was sitting in a reclining chair, slipping farther and farther away, I began researching firefighter cancer. Cotter stayed up night after night. She wanted to know if there was something about his work that raised his risk of cancer. Eventually, she zeroed in on PFAS, a class of chemicals that were invented in the 1930s and are used in a wide range of products because they're good at making surfaces water-repellent. Researchers are still studying the safety of PFAS, but some of these chemicals are linked to health concerns like testicular cancer and kidney cancer. Cotter wondered if PFAS chemicals are in the protective clothes firefighters wear. They call them turnout gear. The manufacturers wouldn't tell her, so she came up with a strategy. Emailing everybody that I could think of. And I got one of the 6,000 emails she sent. Graham Peasley is a physicist at the University of Notre Dame. He studies PFAS and clicked reply. I said, well, I'd be happy to test it. If you have a piece of sample, you can send me. I'm literally selling sweatshirts and cake sales to try to buy this new set of turnout gear. Cotter scraped together the money, bought the gear, and sent a sample to Peasley. He ran the tests. It was mind-boggling. Mind-boggling, because the gear has very high levels of PFAS. It took me a year to sort of believe the result that we had, because nobody had ever said that or published it. Peasley got others to run similar tests, and now their work is prompting a reckoning that's playing out in firehouses, statehouses, and courthouses. On the lawn outside Norfolk County Superior Court in Dedham, the head of the largest firefighters union in the country announced a lawsuit last month. As firefighters, we know we have a dangerous job. Edward Kelly used to be a Boston firefighter. Now his union is suing the group that sets national standards for firefighting gear. The lawsuit alleges the guidelines essentially require gear to have PFAS, and there's collusion with manufacturers to keep it that way. And that's wrong. We deserve better as firefighters, and quite frankly, the public deserves better. When we go out the door to a call, we're coming into your homes. It's flaking off us and flowing around your house. Research shows firefighters have higher PFAS levels in their blood than the general public. But scientists aren't sure turnout gear is the main culprit. The National Fire Protection Association calls the lawsuit meritless. Gore, one of the gear manufacturers, says it is confident in the safety of its gear. Both declined interview requests. Kelly admits that firefighters are exposed to a lot of dangerous chemicals, but he says PFAS in their gear is a risk they can remove. He worries it could be a factor in high rates of cancer among active-duty firefighters. The number one killer of firefighters is cancer, and about 75% of the names we put on our wall are dead from job-related cancer. The uh, levels really jumped in the past decades, surprisingly and shockingly. 
That's State Representative Kate Hogan. She introduced a PFAS bill on Beacon Hill. It includes a provision that would phase out PFAS in firefighter gear. And... This bill directs the Department of Public Health to collect and report data related to occupational exposure to PFAS. Firehouses in Nantucket, Fall River, and elsewhere are reassessing how often to wear gear and what other precautions to take. But some departments are reluctant to make changes. From her war room, Diane Cotter says she's noticed more firefighters sharing their stories. If you look at my Facebook page all day long, you're going to see 35-year-old firefighters, 40-year-old firefighters with testicular cancer, kidney cancer. This was so unnecessary. Cotter says she's focused on figuring out how to reduce PFAS exposure for the next generation of firefighters. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. Coming up on WBUR, Beverly Public Schools are going beyond just electrifying their school buses. Those buses are putting energy back into the grid when demand spikes. We'll tell you how it works at 845 here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. It's 750. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches with catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. From BritBox, with the confessions of Franny Langton, one woman's story of courage, murder, and forbidden love in this new original drama. Available to stream at BritBox.com NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, Boston City Councilor Kenzie Bach is the next head of the Boston Housing Authority, and that means she'll serve about 60,000 of the city's most vulnerable people. But advocates for affordable housing say it is chronically underfunded. So what's first on her agenda? That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. A Russian judge has decided to continue to hold in custody American journalist Evan Gershkovich. He's accused of spying. Missouri prosecutors charged an 84-year-old white man in the shooting of a black teen who accidentally knocked on his door. And today is tax day, which means it's the last day to submit your taxes without filing for an extension. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR, on the WBUR mobile app, and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. Partly overcast and upper 50s today, it's 51 degrees in Boston at 752. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. Being an evangelical Christian in America today is both a religious and a political identity. John Ward grew up in that world, then broke away. How's it feel to have this out in the world? It's a little scary. Our colleague Rachel Martin spoke with the Yahoo News chief national correspondent about his memoir out today. 
when you read this book, you kind of can't ignore the emotional pain that comes through these pages. What was the process like for you to get into the right headspace? It was cathartic, actually. There was a lot of emotion bottled up that I think was released in the process of writing it. I think it's just scary to make myself so vulnerable in a public way like this. You are well-equipped to tell this story because it, it was also your own life. Can you describe the church and the congregation you grew up in? My dad grew up Catholic. My mom grew up Presbyterian. They were both caught up in something called the Jesus Movement or the Jesus Revolution, and it was a national dynamic. A lot of people were looking for something fresh and new in religion, and I think they were also disenchanted with the way the country had gone during the late 60s. The style was kind of a rock and roll worship service with a full band, drums, electric guitar, and all that, and then some dynamic preaching. And my dad was one of the leaders of this group that was meeting. His high school best friend, C.J. Mahaney, was one of the top leaders. So where did your faith move from there? I've been in college for two years, and I've started to experiment with the really crazy lifestyle of occasionally having a beer. Because that was not allowed, even though you were of age, right? Yeah. It's hard probably to convey how pervasive and intense the fear of stepping outside of the lines is and the very real fear that there would be some very dire consequence for doing the wrong thing, which I think ultimately is embodied in the, in the fear of hell. I went all in on church, cut off all my relationships with friends who are not on the same page as, as that, and spent all my time going to church. So when you were really committing your life to the church and to your identity as a Christian, how did that jibe with the rest of your life? I mean, you were a single guy. What was it like dating? You've opened up a whole can of worms by asking about, I mean, when it comes to my professional life, it's in retrospect, just hilarious how little I knew coming out of that world. I was very, very ignorant. A lot of us young men started to get the encouragement of some of the pastors or leaders having these meetings where we would talk about, you know, how often we had looked at pornography and even greater detail about our terrible sins on the internet. Because you had to share all this in a group, right? Correct. Yeah. Sometimes in somebody's kitchen, sometimes at a Starbucks. And I, you know, I write about how I just remember trying to pull my chair as close as possible to the person next to me so that people... We could talk as quietly as possible. <laughs> I, I just was sitting there going like, why are we doing this in a Starbucks again? But when you're caught up in something, it's hard to pump the brakes a lot of times. In the book, you describe a self-loathing that yeah. came over you when it came to sex or any kind of even sexual thought. Yeah. Led to a huge sense of shame. The pastor of your family's church was accused of covering up crimes of child sex abuse. By this point, you had already broken with the church. Yeah. Can you tell me what precipitated that? By the time the sex abuse cases issue came to a head in 2012, 13, 14, I had been out of that church congregation for about a decade. And really, it was just a case of becoming exhausted from that cycle of failure and atonement. 
when Donald Trump came along and white evangelicals painted him as some kind of savior. It was completely confounding to most people in the media and Americans who didn't have a connection to the evangelical church. But this did not shock you. Can you explain why? There were some Christians, some evangelicals who painted Trump as, you know, God's man. But a lot of the evangelicals that I knew, both personally and sort of as public figures, were of the type that were repulsed by Trump and then came to a place of either trying to just sort of ignore politics or, as in the case of my own family, rationalized their way to sort of embracing him. And then once you get into the general election timeframe in 2016 and beyond, I think uh, tribal political identities overtake religious identities. And then you're into the presidency and Trump was very good at provoking outrage, which further solidified his supporters' attachment to him. So what was that like for you? Because you and your family did not agree on this. And, and it caused some real divisions. What hurt the most was the sense that my integrity as a journalist was being called into question, not by some guy out on the street or on a blog or on Twitter, but by my own family. And this, we should say this, this is, your reaction was because Donald Trump started calling the media the enemy of the people and your family didn't understand why that was such an affront. It's hard for me to actually talk about this because it feels not just painful, but my dad, his response to that, I just felt like I was being met with explanations rather than empathy and support, but it did begin back in particular during that time when Trump was using that term with such a horrible history to be used to, as a pretext for violence. That part of the book was so hard to read. It was clear you were still working out so much anger and you did feel abandoned by him. Do you think when you say he has heard you, did he at any point apologize or did you just not push for that? I've tried to avoid saying a whole lot about our conversations. You ask the question directly and I'll answer it. He did apologize for that, yeah. John Ward, his new book is called Testimony, Inside the Evangelical Movement That Failed a Generation. John, thank you so much. Oh, Rachel, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business with the Comcast Business Complete Connectivity Solution. It's cybersecurity, internet, and mobile. All from Comcast Business, powering possibilities. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Prosecutors in Missouri have charged a white 84-year-old man with two felonies for shooting a black teen who mistakenly knocked on his door. It's Tuesday, April 18th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is warning of dire consequences if Congress fails to raise the debt limit. Without exaggeration, American debt is a ticking time bomb. 
that will detonate unless we take serious, responsible action. Also, after years of underfunding, the IRS has more staff available if you need help to meet today's deadline to file your income taxes. And it's perfect because in the summer, when they'd traditionally be sitting around literally doing nothing, now they can be called on to discharge to the grid. An effort in Beverly to use electric school buses as backup power plants. In sports, Bruins win, mostly cloudy, near 60 today. It's 8.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Today, the U.S. Supreme Court hears arguments in an important case that tests how far employers must go to accommodate the religious views of their employees. NPR's Nina Totenberg reports. Nearly a half century ago, the Supreme Court ruled that under the federal law banning discrimination based on religion, employers need only bear what it called minimal costs to its business in order to accommodate a religious worker who doesn't want to work on the Sabbath. The court said a business need not operate shorthanded or regularly pay premium wages to replace workers. Now, however, religious groups of every kind are pressing a new group of more conservative justices to overturn or modify the court's earlier ruling, even if that means that accommodating a religiously observant worker means other workers become demoralized by the extra burden and quit. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. A special grand jury in Akron, Ohio, has declined to charge eight police officers involved in the killing of black motorist Jalen Walker last summer. He was shot 46 times by police. From IdeaStream Public Media in Ohio, Gabriel Kramer reports on Walker's family's response. The Walker family didn't speak, but Paige White from the family's legal team criticized Akron police for calling for peaceful protest after the grand jury's decision. Government buildings were barricaded, and some local businesses boarded up windows a few days ahead of the decision. Akron Police Department, when you call for peace, when you call for no destruction, when you call for respect, where was your respect for Jalen? Ohio's 13th District Congresswoman Amelia Strong Sykes stood with the Walker family and called on the Justice Department to launch a federal investigation into the practices of the Akron Police Department. For NPR News, I'm Gabriel Kramer in Akron, Ohio. A court in Russia has upheld the detention of jailed Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich. Russia accuses him of spying, an allegation he denies. The U.S. government has formally designated Gershkovich as a wrongly detained American. He'll remain in Russian custody through at least the end of May. Violent conflict continues in Sudan between the junta military government and a rebel paramilitary force called the RSF. Relief groups say at least 185 people have been killed. The State Department says a U.S. convoy was attacked yesterday. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says that initial reports indicate the rebels may have been involved. This particular incident is still being investigated in terms of understanding exactly what happened. The initial reports that we have is that uh, it was uh, undertaken by forces associated with the RSF. There are reports of a potential ceasefire in Sudan, but fighting has not let up. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Later this morning, we'll get to hear from the champions of this year's Boston Marathon. The 127th edition of the race produced two repeat winners, two new champions, and a course record. WBUR's Alex Ashlock reports on a marathon filled with excitement, along with wind and rain. 
Kenya's Evans Chibet won the men's race for the second straight year, the first man since 2008 to record back-to-back -back wins. Chibet's victory denied Elliot Kipchoge's bid to add Boston to his long list of titles. In the women's race, Helen O'Berry of Kenya sprinted away in the final mile to make it a Kenyan sweep. American Susanna Scaroni won the women's wheelchair race, even though she had to stop at one point to fix a loose wheel. So I carry an Allen key for situations like that, pulled over, tightened it as quickly as I could, and then just tried to um, keep it going. Marcel Hoog of Switzerland set a new course record, winning his sixth men's wheelchair race in Boston. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Alex Ashlock. The Department of Defense says it is culling through lists of who has access to classified information. That follows last week's arrest of a Massachusetts Air National Guardsman. 21-year-old Jack Teixeira of Dighton is accused of violating the Espionage Act for posting military secrets online. He's due back in a Boston federal courtroom tomorrow. Pentagon officials have not said how many people are losing access to classified information. The Boston Herald reports the review was a long-term effort. The MBTA is holding its second career fair of the season today. The event will be at UMass Dartmouth. The transit agency is looking to fill hundreds of positions to help it maintain service. T General Manager Philip Ang recently told WBUR's Morning Edition that he's hoping to make the agency a premier place to work. Um, it won't be easy, but people will realize that their opportunities are great and we're going we're gonna to really focus on getting to them before they've made decisions on their careers. The T is offering signing bonuses of $7,500 in hopes of stemming its staffing shortages. It's school vacation week, and some families may be looking to get out and do some hiking. It's important to note that even though it's warmer here, some of New Hampshire's hiking trails are still covered in snow and slush. Chris Thayer is with the Appalachian Mountain Club. He says hikers should be prepared for all sorts of weather. Always those 10 essentials, always those extra layers, always the water, the map, the guidebook, and really good traction, uh, particularly this time of year. Thayer says in northern New England, the warmer weather typically doesn't come to stay until Memorial Day. It's 8.07. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by PNC Bank, celebrating all who go above and beyond to give kids the best start in life. PNC is committed to early education. More at pncgrowupgreat.com. The Bruins beat the Florida Panthers 3-1 last night to win Game 1 of their playoff series. Game 2 will be tomorrow night. Tonight, the Celtics and Hawks play Game 2 of their playoff series. Also tonight, the Red Sox will host the Minnesota Twins. Mostly cloudy with a little sun today. It'll be near 60. Partly cloudy overnight. It'll be around 40. Mostly sunny again tomorrow and in the upper 50s. It should stay dry through Saturday. It's 52 degrees in Boston at 8.07. WBUR supporters include iDrive with Remote PC, providing remote access to PCs, Macs, and servers from anywhere, designed to assist those working from home. More at remotepc.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. A white 84-year-old Kansas City man is now facing two felonies tied to the shooting of a black teenager. Yesterday, Andrew D. Lester was charged by Clay County prosecutors. Lester is accused of shooting 16-year-old Ralph Yarl after mistakenly knocking on Lester's door. 
looking to pick up his little twin brothers. The Clay County prosecutor, Zachary Thompson, said his office looks forward to getting a, quote, just result. We enforce the laws and we follow the laws, and that does not matter where you come from or what you look like or how much money you have. Everyone is held to the same standard. Peggy Lowe of member station KCUR is following this story. Peggy, first off, can you tell us uh, any update on Ralph Yarl, how he is this morning? Good morning. A Ralph Yarrow was released from Children's Mercy Hospital yesterday. He has a head injury to his forehead, and then also he was shot in the arm. But he is recovering. Um, his mom's a nurse, and she is said to be taking time off to care for him. And his dad told the Kansas City Star that he's making good progress. Uh, as for Lester, he's out on $200,000 bond. Okay, so tell us how this shooting happened. Ralph Yarl was sent by his mom to pick up his twin brothers at a private home about 10 o'clock on last Thursday night. Trouble is, he went to the wrong address. He was supposed to go to 115th Terrace, and he went to 115th Street. He knocked on Lester's door, and according to prosecutors, Lester opened his door holding a Smith & Wesson 32 caliber revolver. Ralph Yara later told police that Lester said, don't come around here. That's a quote. Um, Lester then shot Ralph Yarl through his glass front door. Then, after Yarl fell, Lester shot him again in the arm. Police found blood on Lester's front porch, the sidewalk, and in the street where Yarl had to run to get away. A neighbor uh, called 911 after hearing the shots. And Lester later told the police that Yarl had tried to open the door and that when he saw a black man there, he was, quoting here, scared to death. Um, have there been a number of discrepancies between what police first said and then what ultimately was confirmed to be correct? That's right. Um, several things have been pretty confusing. So first, Kansas City Police Chief Stacy Graves said she couldn't forward the investigatory case to prosecutors until she interviewed Jarl. That was on Sunday. But Jarl's attorney said that, in fact, detectives had interviewed him at the hospital on Friday. That was the day after the shooting. The probable cause statement backs up that claim by the attorney. Second, police said they arrested Lester on Thursday night, and then they placed him on a 24-hour hold. Well, in fact, he was questioned and released after just two hours, and police have not explained the source of those mistakes. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit more about the charges Andrew Lester is facing. Despite uh, many calls to, the, to that effect, uh, Lester is not being charged with hate crimes, although the prosecutor, Zachary Thompson, did address race uh, yesterday in the press conference. As the prosecutor at Clay County, I can tell you there was a racial component to the case. So what did the prosecutor say about this decision? Thompson defended the way he charged this case by saying that Lester is being charged with assault in the first degree and armed criminal action. In Missouri, those are Class A felonies that carry potentially stiff penalties. If he's convicted of that assault charge, uh, he could face a penalty of up to life in prison. And that hate crime charge, the prosecutor said, would carry a less severe punishment. All right, that's Peggy Lowe of member station KCUR. Peggy, thanks. Thank you. Today, the U.S. Supreme Court hears arguments in a case that tests how far employers must go to accommodate the religious views of employees. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg explains what's at stake. 
Federal law not only makes it illegal to discriminate in employment based on religion, it also requires that employers reasonably accommodate the religious beliefs of workers as long as the accommodation would not impose an undue hardship on the employer's business. But what's an undue hardship? Congress didn't elaborate, so the Supreme Court had to define the term. Forty-six years ago, the court, by a lopsided margin, ruled that an employer need not accommodate a worker's desire to avoid work on the Sabbath if that would mean operating shorthanded or regularly paying premium wages to replacement workers. The court went on to say that employers should not have to bear more than what it called, quote, a de minimis or trifling cost. The de minimis language has sparked lots of criticism over the years, but Congress has repeatedly rejected proposals to provide greater accommodation for religious observers, including those who object to working on the Sabbath. Now, however, religious groups of every kind are pressing a new and more conservative group of justices to overturn or modify the court's earlier ruling. At the center of the case is Gerald Groff, an evangelical Christian. I believe in a literal um, keeping of the Lord's Day. Um, it's the entire day as a day of rest and fellowship and spending time with fellow believers, but most of all just to honor God and to keep the day as special unto Him. Starting in 2012, Groff worked for the Postal Service as a rural carrier associate in rural Pennsylvania. These rural carriers are non-career employees who fill in for more senior career employees during absences. Initially, Groff had no problem because rural carriers were not required to work on Sundays. But in 2013, the Postal Service signed a contract with Amazon to deliver its packages, and that, of course, meant Sunday and holiday deliveries. In a contract negotiated with the union, the Postal Service established a process for scheduling employees for Sunday and holiday Amazon deliveries. The process called for non-career employees like Groff to fill in the gaps first, then volunteers willing to work Sundays and holidays, and if none of this was sufficient to meet demand, the rural associate and assistant carriers would be assigned on a regular rotating basis. The problem for Groff was that he didn't want to ever work Sundays, and the problem for the Postal Service was and is that it's chronically understaffed especially in rural areas. To solve that problem, the Postal Service pools its employees from multiple post offices in a rural area to work on a regular Sunday rotation. So Groff, facing potential disciplinary action for refusal to report for Sunday work, quit and sued the Postal Service for failure to accommodate his religious views. Representing him is the First Liberty Institute, a conservative Christian organization. It's asking the court to throw out its 1977 decision and declare that an undue hardship would have to be a, quote, significant difficulty or expense, instead of more than a de minimis cost to a business. Hiram Sasser is First Liberty's general counsel. They uh, would have to pay him overtime or anyone else overtime anyway, so there's no extra expense. The Postal Service counters that Groff's lawyers are mischaracterizing the way the court's 1977 decision has been applied in practice. Just three years after the decision, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission issued rules further defining what an undue hardship means, rules that are far more deferential to the religious views of employees. 
The Postal Service contends that under those more generous rules, accommodating Groff still would have imposed an undue hardship on the Postal Service as a business by requiring it to operate with insufficient staff in a manner that would so burden other employees that substantial numbers would transfer or quit their jobs. That, says the Postal Service, qualifies as an undue hardship on its business under any standard. Today's argument will, of course, be before a court that is dramatically different from the court that decided what it means to accommodate religious views in the workplace nearly half a century ago. That court sought to balance burdens, while the current court has consistently and explicitly shifted the balance to favor religiously observant groups, whether those groups are religious employers or religious employees. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. What does this Queen Latifah song from 1989 have to do with this? The Super Mario theme? Uh, They're all bangers, but they're also (laughs) two of 25 recordings the Library of Congress recently added to its National Recording Registry. For the first time, the annual list includes a female rapper and a video game soundtrack. Carla Hayden is the librarian of Congress, and she explains the selection process. Some of the recordings are classic rock and pop music. John Denver's Take Me Home, Country Roads. And as I'm saying it, I'm almost bursting into song. Country Roads, take me home. Annie Lennox and Dave Stewart, Sweet Dreams Are Made of This. Sweet dreams are made of this. What the world needs now is love. First recorded by Jackie DeShannon, 1965. One of the oldest recordings on this list this year is from 1908, and it's one of the first recordings of mariachi music. And something that's very significant culturally, Gasolina. It's a reggae song recording, Yankee Doodle, or, or Dandy Yankee. And you see how I can get mixed up there, too. But that's why we want to bring that awareness. Then this distant image. And then there are things that people might me, not think about. It underscores our responsibility. Carl Sagan, reading from his book from 1994, Pale Blue Dot. The Pale Blue Dot. The only home we've ever known. We asked the librarian of Congress if she has a favorite. Well, I actually do. Wang Dang Doodle by Coco Taylor. 1966, This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, scientists say climate change may be driving endangered North Atlantic right whales to new waters, including those off New England shores. And in 20 minutes, today's the deadline for filing your taxes. The IRS finally has more help available if you're still scrambling to file. It's 819. 
I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world, our co-host Leila Fadel has been reporting from Ukraine. In your community, workers are unionizing in fields where they haven't always had a big presence. And farther afield, think really far, like Six, out of this world. Five. And liftoff of Artemis 1. Morning Edition from NPR News takes you wherever the story is. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. And Complex Stories, working to turn big ideas into compelling videos, online experiences, presentations, reports, infographics, and more. Complexstories.com. Our morning newsletter, WBUR Today, just hit your inbox. This one has a look at the big winners from the Boston Marathon. Plus, find out what you need to know before the tax deadline at midnight tonight. Sign up for WBUR Today at WBUR.org slash newsletters. In your forecast, partly sunny today with a high near 60. Tonight, partly cloudy and a low of 41. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and a high near 57. Right now, it's 53 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Peacock with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof, streams April 20th on Peacock. From Keeper, a password manager designed to keep passwords secure and protect against cyber attacks. Websites and app logins are accessible across devices and passwords are shareable. More at KeeperSecurity.com. From Drexel University, whose cooperative education program lets students explore a future career, build a resume, and earn a salary before graduation. More at Drexel.edu slash Ambition Can't Wait. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. Change one thing in our environment and sometimes it ripples across the planet. That's a North Atlantic right whale. They're highly endangered and several years ago they disappeared from the waters off the coast of Maine where they're normally found. Now scientists are linking that to changes that begin thousands of miles away. Lauren Summer from NPR's Climate Desk takes us there. On a warm summer day, the surface of Greenland is alive. So this water is just coming from the surface of the ice sheet, which is melting all the time. So we saw lower down... Andrew Sol is a researcher at the University of Sheffield. We're in West Greenland, and there's ice as far as we can see. It forms craggy peaks, deep crevasses, and it's all liquefying. The meltwater gathers, forms little rivulets, little streams, and they all feed into a main river. A river on top of the ice. And that river suddenly disappears. It drops into a dark, somewhat terrifying crack in the ice, basically a hidden waterfall. Now, where it's going is to the bed of the ice sheet. Greenland is melting more and more as the climate gets hotter. It's losing 280 billion tons of ice a year. And that melt is going to speed up. But by how much? That's what Seoul is here studying. Uh, what is it, 200 milliliters? Yeah. 200 milliliters. Okay, go for it, Ryan. His research team is tracking this meltwater by releasing a colorful, non-toxic dye. So now the whole 
river downstream of Ryan has turned a really fluorescent, bright pink. And it's, to be honest, quite a surreal sight, uh, surrounded by the lovely white ice and the sort of blue turquoise colour of the water. This meltwater pours to the bottom of the ice sheet and flows underneath it, building up the pressure. What happens under the ice is that water pressure is sufficient to lift the ice or to reduce the friction at the base of the ice to speed it up. That means the ice sheet moves faster at certain times of year, sliding towards the Atlantic Ocean. And that's where it can have huge consequences. Greenland is at the crux of a crucial ocean current, one that controls what it's like in the ocean and on land. It's called the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, or AMOC for short. The AMOC has been depicted as a conveyor belt. Amy Bauer studies ocean currents at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Here's how this giant ocean conveyor belt works. The current carries warm water from the equator up the east coast of the U.S., all the way to Greenland. That's where the salty water cools off. It gets heavy and sinks to the bottom of the ocean. And then go back towards the equator, down deep, carrying that cold water, kind of a return flow. This giant conveyor belt can carry more water than 8,000 Mississippi rivers. And it's powered by that sinking that happens near Greenland. But that's also where more fresh water is pouring into the ocean from all that melting ice. Fresh water is like, I don't want to sink. I don't want to sink. I'm very light. <laughs> I don't want to sink. So fresh water tends to inhibit this sinking motion. If the sinking gets weaker, the whole ocean current could slow down. There are signs that's already happening, though some scientists say it needs to be studied longer to be certain. And when currents change, it can cascade through the whole ocean. It's late summer, and scientist Philip Hamilton is searching for North Atlantic right whales. It's our fourth night at sea. It's been a challenging trip so far. He knows most of the whales individually by name. That's because there are only 340 of them left. And for decades, he's tracked them with a team from the Anderson Cabot Center for Ocean Life. We've only been able to find about 20 whales in this large area. And we're expecting to find more like 70 or 80. Normally, Hamilton would be on the water in the Gulf of Maine during the summer. But around 2015, the whales began disappearing from there. Now he's looking hundreds of miles away in Canadian waters, where some of the right whales have turned up. We saw a calf appears to have a propeller cut on its chin after only eight months of life. Um, pretty distressing. Over a two-year period, 21 right whales were killed in Canada, many hit by ships or tangled in ropes from fishing gear. There were no protections for the whales because no one was expecting them there. But the whales needed to move because they were following their food. I usually just call them bugs, and I think of them as bugs in the water. Erin Meyer-Gutbrod is an ecologist at the University of South Carolina. She's talking about a tiny plankton called Calanus finmargicus. Right whales used to feed on them in the Gulf of Maine, but the water there is getting hotter because of shifting ocean currents. It's the kind of change scientists say could only get worse as Greenland keeps melting. The Gulf of Maine is warming faster than 99% of the global ocean. The plankton declined, so whales had to search for them in new places. The Canadian government recently started closing fishing grounds when whales are around to protect them. But they're still dangerously close to extinction, especially as the oceans keep changing. Which puts us all in this state of emergency because then we don't really know where they're going to go, which means that we can't effectively protect 
their habitat. Meyer Gutbrod says it's not just whales at risk. Changing ocean currents could cause entire ecosystems to shift or die off. We're just entering this time of extreme uncertainty. You know, we can't look at the past and allow that to shape the future because humans have kind of thrown a wrench in what used to be natural processes. She says one hope for the whales and the rest of the ecosystem is to protect them by predicting these changes ahead of time to know what might happen. And to do that, scientists need to better understand how climate change could be setting off this cascade from hotter oceans to shifting ocean currents, and ultimately, to how a huge hunk of ice sitting on top of Greenland is disappearing increasingly fast. Lauren Summer, NPR News. NPR's Climate Desk is looking at the far-reaching effects of melting ice all this week. You can catch more of their stories right here or online at npr.org slash icemelt. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Next here on Morning Edition, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is issuing dire warnings about the debt limit. But he says he has demands President Biden must meet before Republicans will agree to raise that limit. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, committed to providing teachers with MED degrees, credentials, and personalized career-long mentoring. Online.merrimack.edu. And Simone Lee at the ICA, a major exhibition the Globe calls breathtaking. Now on view, icaboston.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. A court in Russia says Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich will remain in a Moscow prison as he faces charges of espionage. The 31-year-old reporter stood inside a glass cage today as he appealed his pretrial detention. Gershkovich and the Biden administration deny the charges. The U.S. ambassador to Russia, Lynn Tracy, was at the hearing and spoke to reporters afterwards. The charges against Evan are baseless, and we call on the Russian Federation to immediately release him. Gershkovich is the first American reporter to be arrested on espionage charges in Russia in 37 years. Video released by the Kremlin today shows Russian President Vladimir Putin traveling by helicopter to areas of Ukraine controlled by Russian forces. Putin is shown meeting with his military commanders in southern Kherson and in Luhansk. It marks Putin's second trip to Russian-held areas of Ukraine in recent weeks. There are reports of a temporary ceasefire in Sudan, where the military has been fighting members of a paramilitary group for several days. The truce is said to be for 24 hours. Fighting in Sudan erupted on Saturday, leaving at least 185 people dead and thousands injured. A U.S. diplomatic convoy came under attack there yesterday. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. 
Congressman Seth Moulton says he's worried about U.S. relations with China. Moulton serves on the House Select Committee on China. He spoke with CNN yesterday after the FBI arrested two alleged Chinese agents in New York City. The two American citizens are charged with conspiring to act as agents of the Chinese government and obstructing justice while running a secret police outpost. This does not bode well uh, for our future relations with China. It doesn't bode well for just being a Chinese citizen. And that's one of the points we have to remember is that the Chinese uh, citizens are really the victims here, in this case, Chinese Americans. The FBI also charged 34 Chinese police officers with working in New York to silence dissidents on China's behalf. People in Massachusetts want to spend more money on regional bus systems. A new survey from the Mass Inc. Polling Group and the Boston Foundation finds nearly 80 percent of residents want to boost service on the 15 regional transit authorities. Those agencies provide service outside of what the MBTA offers. Health officials say people who rely on the bus are more likely to be low-income or people of color, and they say increasing bus service is important for public health. Ukraine's ambassador to the U.S. will be the graduation speaker next month at Boston College. The school says Oksana Markarova will also receive an honorary degree, which she'll accept on behalf of the people of Ukraine. Commencement at B.C. is scheduled for May 22nd. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Muzzin Audio, offering high-fidelity FM Bluetooth audio speakers in an array of nostalgic designs and colors. Available at muzzinaudio.com. The Bruins beat the Florida Panthers last night in Game 1 of their playoff series. The final at the Garden was 3-1. to one. Game 2 will be tomorrow night here in Boston. Tonight, it's Game 2 between the Celtics and Atlanta Hawks. Boston leads the series one game to none. And at Fenway tonight, the Red Sox will play the Minnesota Twins. In your forecast, a mix of sun and clouds today. Temperatures will rise to a high near 60. Tonight, those fall to a low around 40. Tomorrow, more sun than clouds and a high in the upper 50s. Right now it's 53 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash banking for business. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. A top priority for Congress is tackling a looming deadline on the debt ceiling. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy addressed the issue yesterday during a speech at the New York Stock Exchange. Debt limit negotiations are an opportunity to examine our nation's finances. But actual negotiations between McCarthy and the White House remain stalled. 
Here to talk us through this is NPR congressional reporter Barbara Sprunt. Hi, Barbara. Hi, good morning. Good morning. So for starters, give us some context to the debt limit itself and how we got here. So zooming way out, the debt limit isn't about future spending. It's about meeting the cost of existing commitments the federal government has made. And it's something that can feel a bit like Groundhog Day because when the debt ceiling is approached, Congress has to address it in some way. And that's what's happening now. In January, the U.S. hit its debt limit. The Treasury Department employed what it calls extraordinary measures to essentially act as a band-aid for a couple of months, but that will run out in early summer. If Congress fails to raise the debt limit before then, it could lead to an unprecedented debt default. So a lot at stake here. McCarthy talked about this during his speech, and he called the debt a, quote, ticking time bomb. What's his plan? Well, McCarthy said the House will vote in the coming weeks on a bill that would reduce federal spending levels to those in 2022, limit the growth of spending over the next 10 years to 1% annually, and raise the debt limit into 2024, which I should point out could cause lawmakers to have to negotiate this whole thing again smack dab in the middle of the presidential primary season. Uh, McCarthy said House Republicans would also add work requirements for adults without dependents who are enrolled in various federal assistance programs like food stamps. McCarthy was very careful to add that the bill wouldn't touch Social Security and Medicare, two programs that are very popular. This speech comes as negotiations between the speaker and the president have stalled. The pair met in February. And McCarthy laid the blame for the impasse at Biden's feet. Biden has remained adamant that he wants to sign a clean debt ceiling bill, so one that's completely separate from any legislation on spending cuts. But it's worth noting that McCarthy is marking his first 100 days as speaker. And if we cast back to earlier this year, you'll remember there was a very long series of votes to secure enough support for him to become speaker. And one of the demands from lawmakers who initially withheld their support was that the House not vote on a standalone measure to lift the debt limit. Yeah, so McCarthy's walking a fine line with various GOP factions here, right? Well, it seems like something that could prove to be difficult for McCarthy. His slim majority means he can afford to lose only a handful of Republicans. And even if the bill were passed, it would still be dead on arrival in the Democratic-controlled Senate. But the thinking is if it can pass the House, it might bring Biden back to the negotiating table. Okay, so this is troubling. The two parties basically nowhere on what to do about the debt limit. What are Democrats saying? Well, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has repeatedly said that Republicans should work alongside Democrats to avert this crisis, which he points out they did under the Trump administration. The discussion about cuts belongs in the discussion about budget, not as a precondition for avoiding default. After McCarthy's speech, White House spokesperson Andrew Bates said in a statement that the speaker didn't clearly outline an exact proposal and said McCarthy is holding the economy hostage. NPR congressional reporter Barbara Sprunt. Barbara, thanks. Thank you. More than 90 million people have filed tax returns so far this year, but some of us wait till the last minute. And for most people, that's midnight tonight. The IRS has automatically extended the deadline for parts of some states that have experienced natural disasters, such as California, Alabama and Tennessee. Taxes come due this year as the IRS is embarking on a 10-year, $80 billion makeover to crack down on tax cheats and improve customer service. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now. Happy Tax Day, Scott. Good morning, Layla. Good morning. So let's talk about that $80 billion. How's the IRS going to spend it, and what will that mean for taxpayers? 
Some of the money is going to go to replace outdated computer hardware. A lot of it's going to go for new personnel. So the IRS can do a better job of collecting the money the government needs to operate. You know, for more than a decade, the agency has been starved of resources. So the new IRS Commissioner, Danny Werfel, plans to hire a lot more auditors and lawyers uh, to make sure that wealthy people pay the taxes they owe. Despite what some might think or say, these public servants within the IRS are armed only with calculators and their skills to help us address complex issues. Now, the administration says the stepped-up enforcement will focus on people making more than $400,000 a year, especially those with the most complicated returns and have more avenues for cheating. For the average wage earner, the IRS already knows how much money you make, so the opportunities for tax evasion are pretty limited. <laughs> the image of a bunch of public servants armed with calculators. Uh, so what's the IRS doing to improve customer service? Customer service really suffered in recent years, especially during the depths of the pandemic. Last year, for example, 9 out of 10 phone calls to the IRS went unanswered. This year, though, the agency has hired 5,000 more people to help staff the phone lines. Welcome to the Internal Revenue Service. To continue in English, press 1. Hold times have been cut from an average of 27 minutes last year to just four minutes this year. And Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says the agency is now consistently answering 80 to 90 percent of the incoming calls. That is a dramatic improvement compared to the previous filing season. Yellen says this $80 billion investment will transform the IRS into what she calls a modern 21st century agency. Uh, that means more speedy online communication with taxpayers, less mailing of paper back and forth. Of course, there are always some folks who like doing things the old-fashioned way. Yeah, and you spoke with one of those people. Tell us about him. Yeah, I talked to Jay Zagorski, who's a professor at Boston University's Questrom School of Business. He's a big believer in cash, which he says works even when the power goes out or the Internet's down. Uh, he owed the government just over $1,000 in taxes this year, and as an experiment, he tried to pay the bill in cash. My goal was not to be a protest at all. As a matter of fact, I went to the bank and got crisp $100 bills in exact change to make this process as easy as possible for the IRS. Now, the IRS does have instructions on its website for how to pay in cash, but it's not easy. You have to make an appointment. Zagorski actually had to make two trips to the IRS. Various retailers will accept cash payments for the agency, and you can buy a prepaid credit card and then pay online. But, you know, all those options have fees attached, and Zagorski thinks it ought to be easier, especially for the six million people who don't have a bank account. Of course, a lot of those folks have the opposite problem, not how to pay additional taxes due, but how to affordably collect their refund. NPR's Scott Horsley. Thanks, Scott. You're welcome. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, we hear about a new program in Beverly that's using school buses to feed power to the electric grid. Then at 9, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on a temporary ceasefire that stopped the fighting in Sudan. In your forecast, upper 50s today under partly sunny skies, partly cloudy tonight with low 40s. Upper 50s again tomorrow and mostly sunny. Right now it's 53 degrees in Boston at 842.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. Boston-based Zipcar will devote 25% of its electric vehicles to disadvantaged communities across the U.S. The car-sharing company also plans to add even more EVs to its fleet. The move is meant to help the Biden administration meet its goal of making half of new car sales electric by 2030. The newly renovated observatory and restaurant atop the Prudential Tower is looking to fill more than 200 new job openings. The View Boston attraction takes over the space once home to the top of the hub restaurant. The Boston Business Journal reports openings include positions in food and beverage, retail and operations. An opening date for View Boston has not been announced. It's 844. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by MIT Museum, with captivating exhibitions and dynamic programming that turn MIT inside out. Curious what the buzz is about? Plan your visit today. And New England Conservatory's Philharmonia and Symphonic Choir at Symphony Hall on April 26th, conducted by Hugh Wolf. Tickets at necmusic.edu. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. When we crank up the air conditioning on the hottest days of summer, that electricity typically comes from fossil fuels. But a new project aims to provide a new, unlikely source for that energy. School buses. WBUR's Paula Morda explains that electric buses in Beverly are using their big batteries to store energy and release it when the grid needs energy the most. The Beverly Public School Bus Depot is filled with almost 50 school buses. At the edge of the lot are the four electric buses parked next to the charging equipment. Beverly Public Schools Transportation Director Dana Cruikshank unhooks the charger plug. This is uh, one of the chargers that we have that does the vehicle-to-grid transfer. That means not only can the bus charge by plugging into the grid, but it can send power to the grid as well. Just plug it into the bus. The bus will start, you know, blinking, showing that it's making a connection to it. Cruikshank points to a small screen on the charger and describes how it would look when the bus is powering the grid. If you're selling power back to the grid, that arrow is going to go in the reverse direction, saying that it's pushing the power out of the bus back to the grid. Beverly Public Schools started the program in 2021 with one bus. Last summer, they increased to two buses and they sent 7 megawatt hours onto the grid. That's the equivalent to powering over 200 single homes for an entire day. The concept is simple, but the execution is complicated. That's where Highland Fleets comes in. It orchestrates everything from bringing high-voltage power to managing charging and discharging. It trains the bus drivers and maintains the buses. And Highland Fleet sells the service to schools for about the cost of a regular school bus. Cruikshank says it makes a big difference. It makes it a lot more affordable for a small school district like ourselves. 
Buses are excellent backup power plants for two reasons. First, they carry a big battery, a lithium-ion battery with three times as much capacity as the average electric car. Second, the school buses usually don't have a summer job. And in New England, demand for electricity is highest during the summer because of air conditioning use. Sean Leach is the director of technology at Highland Fleets, the company working with Beverly Public Schools. It's perfect because in the summer, when they'd traditionally be sitting around literally doing nothing, now they can be called on to discharge to the grid. The way it works is, the utility alerts Highland Fleets before they anticipate needing power. Then, the company makes sure the buses are charged and connected to the grid. Software takes over and everything fires off as it, as it should. And then once the buses discharge, they actually recharge later on in the evening when power is less expensive and the grid is less taxed. Highland Fleets owns and leases more than 100 school buses and it hopes to create similar projects with some of those vehicles. The company has another electric bus-to-grid project in Vermont that will begin this summer. And utilities are gearing up for more of these projects, too. Jake Navarro is the director of Clean Transportation for National Grid, the utility working with the project in Beverly. We expect over the coming years, you know, many more customers to be interested in this technology. Back at the school depot, Cruikshank says it's exciting to be one of the first electric bus-to-grid projects in the country. He says many school districts have reached out to him to learn how they could replicate the project. Cruikshank hopes that if every school makes a small effort, together they could make a big difference for the planet. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moura. Funding for WBUR's environmental coverage comes from an unlikely story bookstore and cafe in Plainville, believing that where you shop shapes where you live. With books, games, cards, decor, and more for specific interests, such as the environment and climate change. In-person and live virtual events. More at anunlikelystory.com. Coming up on Morning Edition, spending at restaurants and bars was up 13% in March compared to a year ago, even as groceries got cheaper. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales, proud to support Boston Medical Center, and they're supporting our families through addiction and recovery program, committed to helping families enhance their children's development and providing support for recovery with access to specialty care and social services. Learn more at bmc.org. I'm Tiziana Deering, host of Radio Boston. And if your day is as hectic as mine, it's not a problem. Because you can download the new and improved WBUR app and never miss a minute of live radio. You can pause and rewind Radio Boston. You can start from the top of the hour, all on your schedule. Listen to all your favorite shows when and how you want. Get the new WBUR app in your app store today. 
Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. A Russian judge today upheld the detention of American journalist Evan Gershkovich on spy charges. On Capitol Hill, negotiations are stalling in the effort to raise the nation's debt ceiling. And in New York, opening arguments start today in Dominion Voting System's defamation suit against Fox News. The BBC will have the top global headlines in 10 minutes and stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR, on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include UMass Chan Medical School proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. Partly overcast and upper 50s today. Right now it's 53 degrees in Boston at 851. Eat out or dine in. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by SoFi. With a SoFi high-yield savings account, members can earn more money on their money. Plus, deposits are FDIC-insured. Learn more at SoFi.com, SOFI.com. Get your money right. SoFi Bank, N.A., member FDIC. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. Eating out at restaurants and bars got more expensive in March, according to the Consumer Price Index. Meanwhile, groceries, as in eating at home, actually got a little cheaper. And yet, Americans are still eating out a lot. Spending at restaurants and bars was up 13% in March compared to a year ago, according to the Census Bureau. Marketplace's Henry Epp has more. Call it revenge dining. There's a real pent-up demand to get back out into the world again and eat out. James Cook is director of retail research at commercial real estate company JLL, which just put out a report on the restaurant industry and is a marketplace underwriter. He says demand is especially high for takeout and fast food. But reservations for sit-down dining are growing, too, mostly in the Sunbelt states. Like Florida, Texas, Arizona. But getting enough staff to meet that demand is still a challenge, says Emily Williams-Knight, president of the Texas Restaurant Association. There may be an hour wait and guests see open tables, and that's very much around the labor shortage that we're still trying to work our way through nationally. Rising labor costs are one reason inflation has hit the restaurant sector and why it might take longer for those prices to fall, says Omer Sharif, president of Inflation Insights. And those same tailwinds don't necessarily exist right now when you look at restaurant inflation. On the flip side, higher wages overall are one reason Americans might feel a bit more comfortable splurging at restaurants. I'm Henry Epp for Marketplace. Both housing starts and new building permits came down in March by a lot. Permits were 8.8% lower than last month. New construction was about a percent lower. Ever since the Fed started raising rates last year, new construction has been getting harder to finance, and housing starts and permits have mostly been coming down. Still, there's some optimism that the housing market may have at least bottomed out. Marketplace's Mitchell Hartman has more. As mortgage rates climbed to near 7% last year and home sales fell, the National Association of Home Builders Confidence Index tanked. But since the beginning of this year, it's been rising, says Chief Economist Robert Dietz. The turning point is in view. Dietz expects mortgage rates to stabilize around 6%, attracting buyers back into the market but probably not first-time buyers with limited budgets. He says construction inflation has driven prices way up, so most new homes are only affordable for... Older, wealthier, higher-income buyers. 
Meanwhile, current homeowners want to hold on to their low mortgage rates so they aren't putting their homes on the market. Zillow economist Jeff Tucker says that translates to fewer commissions, less transactions, less income, and in the longer run, probably fewer jobs. Real estate employment fell in March. Could be a statistical blip or the start of a sustained decline. I'm Mitchell Hartman for Marketplace. All right, let's do the numbers. The FTSE in London is up two-tenths of a percent. Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are also up in the one to eight-tenths percent range with the Dow future up 33 points. Ten-year Treasury yield is at 3.583%. Bank earnings are rolling in this week. Goldman Sachs profits fell in the first quarter. Bank of America beat expectations and made more in interest income. Meanwhile, Apple is getting into the banking game. It's offering a high-yield savings account with Goldman Sachs, offering yields way higher than the national average. Apple stock is up nine-tenths percent in pre-market trading. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive Insurance. The Name Your Price tool provides a range of coverage options. Progressive.com. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. Inflation gets you in life and in death. Cremation is getting more popular. It can be cheaper and easier and apparently more creative. There's a growing market for ways to store or send off someone's ashes you can turn them into jewelry or explode them in a fireworks display. Allie Budner has more on how funeral homes are adapting. The first cremation in Barbara Chemis's family was 26 years ago when her brother died in a college accident. We truly did not own grave space for a 20-year-old person. Um, it was sudden and horrible, and the funeral director was the one who suggested cremation to us. Now, Chemist leads the Cremation Association of North America. She says the cremation rate is almost 60% and surpasses that of traditional casket burials. One reason? Cremation typically costs a little bit less than burial. Sometimes thousands of dollars less. But this shift has caused a kind of reckoning for the funeral industry. We have had to adapt. Jack Mitchell is president of the National Funeral Directors Association and also directs a funeral home in Baltimore. It used to take more of our man hours to prepare for a viewing with embalming and dressing and cosmetics and then to have staff there to oversee when a visitation was going on. People were paying him to direct church funerals. That's happening less and less now, and so that has caused a decrease in income. So funeral directors like him are pivoting. More than a third now have their own crematoriums, and they're offering new ways to store cremated remains, or cremains. And we're not just talking about urns here. Loved ones want options. They don't want the remains of their loved ones just sitting on a shelf somewhere. Caitlin Hauke is with the Green Burial Council. With the potential to get forgotten or lost or donated or something like that, in other words, grandma's urn accidentally ending up in the pile of things you send to Goodwill. Oops. Hauke says funeral entrepreneurs have a few more ideas these days. So there are things like getting ashes made into jewelry or to different types of objects. Things like glass art, sculptures, diamonds, keychains, hunting bullets. You can even turn your loved one's ashes into a vinyl album or get them tattooed into your own skin. 
Of course, many people choose to scatter cremains in special places. Disney World seems to be a really popular place for people to scatter ashes. But, she adds, Disney World really doesn't want you to do that. I'm Ali Budner for Marketplace. And in New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Partly cloudy and upper 50s today, low 40s and still partly cloudy tonight. Tomorrow a bit sunnier and back to the upper 50s. Right now it's 53 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. WBUR supporters include BMW. With a range of up to 301 miles, the BMW i4 is 100% electric and 100% BMW. The first all-electric BMW i4 is available at your local BMW centers. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.